Hello and welcome to episode 113 of Fergo and the Freak. I'm that bloke from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewRP. Joining me as always is the glorious League Freak. You can find on Twitter at League Freak. How are you going there, mate? I'm going really well. How are you, Andrew? Not bad at all. Not bad at all. I've had my uh, had my head buried in newspapers for the week. Oh, really? Doing some yes. research? Done some research. Nice. Because, um, which means another history episode for you all today. Yeah, we love we love doing the history episodes. Um, and the thing that's different about this one from other ones that we've done is that I probably know less about this subject than I have the other subjects. So I feel as though I'm going to learn a lot in this episode. So I'll probably change the approach that we've had in the past to the history episodes. Um, and I'm kind of excited about that. We'll see how we go. Yes, and I forgot to bring water, so... That's all right. Do you <laughs> want to go and get goes. some water? Nah, she'll be fine. Okay. Um, all right, so today I'm going to dub this one One Little Lie. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay, so um, it's all based around the 1917 uh, New South Wales Rugby League season. Mm-hmm. It started amid... Um, continued public criticism of rugby league and their decision to continue playing competition games uh, during the war. Uh, administrators of the game believe that competition should continue, much much like cricket uh, um, administrators did as well, because it gave people an enjoyable escape from the depressing reality of war. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an attitude that was shared by nearly every other sport, yet there was quite a bit of vitriol from certain aspects of the media that was largely directed at rugby league at the other sports as well, but most of rugby league about their decision to continue um, playing competitive sport at that time. And not just paying it, I guess, but also making money out of it. Um, There was a long held myth, mostly perpetuated by rugby union types that rugby league continued to play during the war so as to reap the benefits of other codes folding. Um, and there's also this disgusting lie that was peddled that league players chose to stay at home and earn money to play footy instead of going to war, which is just, it's just an absolute load of horseshit that is. Mm-hmm. Um, now, to prove how much garbage that was, in 1915, April 30th, 1915, so we're still within the first year of, of World War One having been going on. There was an article in the Sun newspaper, and it was addressing this very issue. And it's I posted it on Twitter last week. It's a very good read. It's an opinion piece, and unlike today's opinion pieces, there's no one's name attached to this. Yeah, it was a, it was kind of different the way that journalism was that was almost a almost a point of pride that it was an opinion piece that you put out but you didn't feel the need to attach yourself to it that's right i mean and yeah for all we know this could be the great grandfather of staff writers (laughs) 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 who knows anyway it was titled the nonsense talked about sport and it contained a very important sentence and fittingly it was attacking the Daily Telegraph for not being factual when it stated that 
the sporting bodies generally in this state, New South Wales, have cancelled their ordinary engagements while the war continues. The Sun countered this and said, Surely the Telegraph has both eyes shut. The cricket competitions were continued and concluded. Racing goes on. League football will be played. Amateur boxing selected as champions as usual. In popular sport, the only organisation to seize its activity is the rugby union, and the rugby union has been dwindling in importance for several seasons. Well, that's interesting because, yeah, as you say, it's it's something that union types have weirdly like i mean you can still hear people attacking rugby league from rugby union over this subject even till today yeah i mean they've been and, hanging their hat on this one for a while yeah like in a weird way um and the thing about world war one that people need to understand and this was written as you say in the first year of the war and when world war one first started when young men would go and join the army to join the 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 cause uh, there was a bit of a different outlook on war. A lot of young men saw it as a chance to see the world and they didn't realise the horrors that they would be encountering in World War One because World War One was, it was very different to the wars that people had read about in books and things like that. There hadn't been too many modern sort of wars that had been fought and this was kind of the first modern war that, was really i mean it was a meat grinder and the the number of casualties the casualty numbers that come out of this war people just didn't conceive of them when they were joining the war effort and as the war went on uh people were horrified by that and it really changed the way that people were going to join the army and they towards the end of the war they had problems in that a lot of young men had been killed in the war and a lot of other young men who had grown up into the to being able to be eligible to join the war effort, they knew that if they joined it, there was a really, really good chance that they would die a very horrible death. Um, so, yeah, it was a an interesting moment in world history and in almost society's way that it it really looked at an issue like this it kind of changed a there was an innocence about what a war was and this changed at world war one did absolutely um so much so that you know as you said so many men died that by uh mid to late 1916 billy hughes the australian prime minister and he was actually also a board member for the glebe club back in 1908 when they first entered the competition um, he tried to push conscription through and, and legalised it in Australia and, and as a way to get more troops over there. Um, and that was, you know, that's only in the second year of the war mm. and that got defeated very narrowly. So, you know, we, we saw certain things like, you know, trying to label people as cowards for not going and serving for their country and the like. And that's where you know, a lot of this attacking attacking footballers who didn't go over sort of stems from it. It's pretty much trying to label them as cowards. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to sort of, I suppose, show that the rugby league didn't really have any benefit out of this period. Right? In 1914, the New South Wales Rugby League had its best crowds 
ever in their seven-year history at that stage, with the season ending a month after World War I began. So they averaged over 7,500 people per game. In 1915, that average was down to 5,800 per game. And in 1916, it was down to 3,100. Wow. In fact, it wouldn't be until 1921 that the game actually had a season where the average crowd reached 7,000 per game. And that was largely due to the competition having just nine rounds of four games. Um, There was also two brand new teams in university and St. George, um, which was made it a bit of a one-off. Um, you know, it wasn't until the mid to late thirties and forties that we saw the crowd starting to come up and then World War Two came around and knocked them back down again. And then you had basically St. George's Golden, South and St. George's Golden Runs in the fifties brought them back in again. Mm-hmm. It took till the fifties for the game to get the crowds back above consistently above 7,500 per game. So this notion that rugby league somehow benefited from the war is ludicrous. It struggled like every other sport did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's, it's very strange. It's, it's been used as a weapon against rugby league for a long time and it just doesn't bear out. That's right. Um, now, since the beginning of the war, the New South Wales Rugby League had played matches against teams made up of servicemen, as well as exhibition games where they donated monies from many of the largest drawing games to the war campaign. One in one particular occasion, they even donated a field ambulance. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Um, and that's, that's on top of all of the men who went and served for the country and died there, including former clubs, former game secretary Ted Larkin, who I mentioned in the last history episode. Mm-hmm. Um, phenomenal human. Um, so because of the large number of rugby league players enlisting for war service, clubs had to look further afield than their own suburb to find quality players so as to remain competitive in competition. Now, from 1908 to 1959, clubs were not restricted by a salary cap as they are today. Instead, they had to abide by a very strict residential rule, which meant players had to live in the area of the team that they were going to represent for at least a year. Or if they were coming from the country, interstate or overseas, they had to live in that, that area for just 28 days. Yeah, and I mean, you can see where... Because, like, during 1917... Australia's population was less than 5 million people. So, first of all, you're not drawing from a big population. Second of all, you're losing a lot of players that, I mean, it's the same sort of group of people that are going to be playing the game or any sport at all that are also going to the war effort. And so they had to really relax a lot of the rules they had in place because otherwise you were going to have a point where teams just weren't going to be able to field a full team of players. So bringing in that... Um, almost an emergency rule where instead of having to live there for a year, you could be there for a month. I mean, that shows where rugby league was at in terms of the plays that it had lost. Yeah, and Glebe especially, they um, they lost probably more players to war service than any of the other rugby league clubs. So mm-hmm. that meant that they couldn't really draw on reserve grade players to, you know, restock, I guess, the losses in their first-grade team. And I mentioned Glebe because that's what this story revolves around mostly. Now, they, Glebe officials travelled to Newcastle um, before the 1917 season started 
and they were very impressed with a young burly centre from Lambton by the name of Dan Davies. Um, and he was playing for Newcastle West. Davies agreed to join Glebe for the 1917 season and moved to Sydney early 1917 so that he could say that he'd lived in the area long enough to be ready to play in their first match of the year. This is where the one little lie comes in. Mm-hmm. And it seems, it doesn't seem like much. Mm-hmm. But as we're about to find out, it was quite a bit. Um, when Davies arrived in Sydney, he lived with a relative of his in Annandale, which is a suburb very, you know, next door to Glebe. Yes, and Annandale had a rugby league team at the time. They certainly did. They weren't, they weren't a top team. They were typically usually trying to avoid the wooden spoon. But that being said, um, Glebe administrators were aware of Davies' residence but reassured him that players regularly play for teams outside the suburb that they lived in. And this little lie is the one that had the immense ramifications. So on May 12, 1917 season began, Davies ran out for Glebe, ironically against Annandale. Glebe beat Annandale 26-5, with Davies scoring a try and kicking a goal on debut. Annandale were aware that Davies was living in the area, and there... Therefore, they lodged a complaint requesting that the game be forfeited by Glebe for fielding an ineligible player. So Annandale were trying to get two competition points, and their argument was Glebe cheated. That's re- You know what's really interesting about that? that? At this time in Sydney's history, these suburbs aren't massive, you know? No. And they must have, to know that he was living in the area, they must have seen him there and just knew that he lived there. It's... It's kind of funny that it just comes down to that. Yeah. Um, just unbelievable, too, that Glebe had the gall to make him run out and play against Annandale. Probably the one team they shouldn't have played against. Yeah. Because Glebe yeah. knew they'd beat Annandale, but they would have also known that Annandale would have probably been the only team in the comp that would have an understanding that Davies wasn't living in Glebe. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder if they had have been a little bit more conservative and said, look, we're not going to chance it. Um, just don't play in it. I wonder how this would have played out. Exactly. Um, so an official investigation began regarding the matter. Davies was asked to sign a declaration by the Glebe official stating that he had indeed been living in the Glebe area. However, this was quickly found to be false. The New South Wales Rugby League decided to strip Glebe of its two competition points for the win against Annandale. This was the first time such action had ever been taint, had ever been taken, and the only time until 1975 when West lost one comp, one comp point for fielding also an ineligible player in their round 15 draw with the Bulldogs. Oh wow! And then then you look at the over the last 20 years of the NRL <laughs> with all the salary cap issues. Yeah, stripper points left, right, and centre. Yeah. I remember Roy Masters saying uh, once upon a time, not to that long ago, but he said that if you look at their record books now, it looks like somebody's put in their homework and there's just scribbles and dot points and, you know, <laughs> people fixing it up here and there. That's exactly right. Um. Now, you might think that was where this this ends, but it's not. Not even close. Uh, the New South Wales Rugby League decided that Dan Davies deserved to be suspended for life. Whoa. 
And and was that purely because he had lied about where he had lived? Yeah, they couldn't. In I think in their mind they couldn't ban a club for life, mm. so they banned the player. Wow. So now we've got two stories here. We'll follow the Glebe one first, and we'll come back to Dan Davies a bit later. Okay. Okay. Glee believed that they were being discriminated against, and future events of that season would suggest such, but it was the demeanour of the demeanour of the club that caused things to get out of control. In round 12, they had a hard-fought victory against Newtown. Glee's big forward, Sid Pert, was sent off for kicking. Newtown's winger, George Bain, in the ankle. Mm-hmm. Sent off for kicking someone in the ankle. Interesting. Uh, Especially in this time in the game's history where the, I mean, you think about the, what the scrums would have been like and, the like, you can strike in the play the ball. Kicking someone in the ankle, it, it would have happened a hundred times in a game. It is innocuous as it gets. Mm. Um, they also had two players from reserve grade that were sent off on the same day in their match against Newtown as well. Um. On the following Monday, two of the sent-off players received excessive suspensions for the rest of the season for seemingly minor incidents, despite numerous previous incidents of a similar or even worse case had actually avoided punishments altogether. Sid Pert, their first grader, was suspended and missed the last two games of the season. Glebe grew more vocal in their opposition to the penalties handed down by the league, and in turn... The league handed down even more severe punishments for indiscretions by the Glebe Club and its players in an attempt to show that they were in control. Like, this is not going to end well. No, no, this... <laughs> Glebe's... They're causing problems. They are. They are. I mean, I understand where they're coming from if they're starting to get looked at like this by the the powers that be. But they keep pushing back against it. And, I mean, what a stubborn club, hey? Yes. Um, they were called the Dirty Reds for a reason, and this is another another sort of part of that reason, is that um, they were tough on the field mm-hmm. and they were tough off the field. Mm-hmm. Um, so the following week, in round 13, they were to line up against neighbouring rivals Balmain. The two clubs had always had a you know, pretty strong and passionate rivalry, like most neighbouring clubs would. Um, in recent times, so since 1915, 1916, um, Bowman had gone from being a cellar-dweller team to the top team. They they won the premiership in 1915. They were undefeated throughout the year. Mm-hmm. They backed it up in 1916 and won the premiership there after they beat South in the final 5-3. So they've come into the 1917 season immense favourites. And at this point, they've played 12 games and only lost one. Mm-hmm. And this is in a, at a time when all you had to do was get the minor premiership and you were handed the title. Yeah. Points difference didn't come into it. So if there were two teams tied on, say, 22 competition points, then they played off in a final to determine who the premier was. Mm-hmm. At this stage, though, Balmain were clearly in front and Glebe was sitting in fourth place. They weren't far off. But you just knew that this was going to be a good game against two very strong sides. Um, the game was scheduled to be played at the SCG, ensuring that both clubs would receive a generous sum from gate takings, as it was a neutral venue. Therefore, both sides would receive pretty much an equal gate gate taking for the game. 
However, because of Glebe's um, complaints the week before, as well as the ruckus that they caused over the Dan Davies matter, um, the New South Rugby League made a last-minute decision to switch the game from the SCG to the much smaller Birchgrove Oval, which was the home ground for Balmain. Whoa. This meant Glebe <laughs> would receive essentially nothing from the game, only Balmain would. Wow. That's interesting because uh, I've I, I got to side with Glebe at this point. They really do seem like there's someone's out to get them. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, when you look at the history of the club too, this tends to be a bit of a turning point. Mm-hmm. Like They had always been a very strong team. Even after this period, they were a very strong team up until about the last three or four seasons that they had. Mm-hmm. But this seems to be a bit of a turning point in their history where they went from being regarded as one of the top sides to being regarded as that team full of troublemakers. Mm-hmm. And every year is just like, let's find another reason as to you know why Glebe should be arguing with the New South Wales Rugby League and vice versa. And it's just this tit-for-tat garbage that went on. Mm-hmm. Um We'll get into what happened with them a bit later on. You know, their demise and stuff like that. Um, So, Glebe officials were outraged. Um, So, the first group players decided to boycott the game. Glebe had fully intended to forfeit the match as a protest against the league. However, they instead fielded a second-rate team out of reserve graders and some juniors from the third grade as well. And Bowman flogged them 40-9. to It would be the only time that a team scored 40 points against Glebe in their 22-year history, as well as being the third of just four occasions in Glebe's history where they lost by a margin of more than 30 points. Oh, wow. That's how good they were. I bet that went down well with the New South Wales Rugby League, too. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It certainly did. Um, The league were, let's put it mildly, um, pissed off. (laughs) Uh, by this boycott that they decided to review the issue over the next two weeks just to allow themselves enough time to calm down after the incident happened and not make a rash decision that failed (laughs) Um, two weeks later they decided to suspend all uh, 14 first grade glee players for the rest of the 1917 season which was I mean it just meant they missed a few rep games at the end of the year Mm-hmm. but also for the entire 1918 season. Oh, goodness. Wow. And this included the Burge brothers, Albie, Laidley, and immortal Frank. Yes, like, I mean, I guess at that time was, I dare say, the best player in the game. Yeah, he's he's right up there. Yeah. This is just before Duncan Thompson becomes, you know, iconic and it's just a few years after Messenger's left. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he is the peak there. There's Harold Horder, Sec Blinkhorn. They're, they're not far away either. So, yeah, Frank would definitely be the the best player here. And I think at this stage he's 22, 23 years old. Yeah, wow. <coughs> um, and it, he's 22 and a six-year veteran too. Oh, geez, he'd been playing. I didn't realize he started playing that young. Yeah, he was 16 when he made... He was so good. Um, he made his debut in 1911. And 
as a 16-year-old. And he was so good that he was shortlisted to go on the Kangaroo Tour over to England at the end of the season. But oh, wow. he was denied the, the chance to go because they didn't think a 16-year-old should go on that journey. And when you look at rugby league history and you come across Frank Burge, it feels like there's been a mistake in the record books. Like, his records are ridiculous. Like, he he was something that had never really been seen in the game before. Yeah, I mean, he still to this day holds the record for most tries in a game by a player. Mm. He scored eight tries against, I think it was University in 1920. Just, Just absolutely crazy. Yeah, like, he, was a, he was a lock slash prop. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Like, I guess the only other <coughs> forward that's ever had that sort of try-scoring ability, obviously, you're looking at Steve Menzies. Yeah. Um, but outside of that, I mean, I can't really think of another genuine forward that, nah. that has ever had anything like the try-scoring ability he had. Your next best is going to be someone like um, Nathan Highmarsh had over 50 tries. Paul Gallon, I think, racked 50 up. Really? Yeah. Gallon got 50 tries in his career? I think he went close to that. Oh, yeah. You know, I'll have a he, look. He did play long enough, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, he did play for, what was it, 39 years? Yeah. <laughs> um, there you go. He had 63 tries. Oh, wow. There you go. Well, then again, I mean, Paul Garland, first receiver for most of his career, too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, Nathan Harmer, Hindmarsh had 60. Yeah, see, the thing that people forget about Nathan Hindmarsh sometimes, I guess, is he started his career as a real barnstorming forward. A um, little bit, not quite the same level as David Fafita, but pretty damn close. And the second half of his career, he turned into a workhorse. And so I could see where a younger person would, thinking of Nathan Hindmarsh as, a, as that sort of ball runner, they might not have ever seen it. That's true. That's absolutely true. They um, would also not have seen Cliff Lyons and how many tries he put on for Steve Menzies. And that that's a real shame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I've got to find out what I was up to there. Sorry, <laughs> I took you off track. I'm, I apologise. That's perfectly fine. Um... <laughs> So, mm-hmm. right. Um, Bowman had won back-to-back premierships in 1915-16. Um, that win against Glebe meant that they also clinched the title in 1917 as well, which has just rubbed a bit more salt into the wound for the Glebe club. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing about Balmain that year, they run away with the premiership like... Therefore, when you have a look at their for and against, it's outrageous. And, I mean, the Balmain teams of this era have to be talked about in terms of the greatest uh, dynasties that we've had in rugby league. They were outstanding. Yeah, from 1915 to 1920, they were premiers every year bar 1918 where South won. It's incredible. Um, yeah, unbelievable side. Uh, so, anyway, over the the long 1917 off-season, the New South Wales Rugby League decided to overturn the suspensions of 12 of the suspended Glebe players amid much anger and heavy criticism from the media and the public. 
Frank and Albie Burge were the only two who hadn't had their suspensions reduced at that time. Um, they later in the off-season had their suspensions cut back to May 1918, which meant that they would be able to play in their first competition game of the 1918 season, which, ironically again, was against Annandale. Poor old Annandale. So, that's the small part of the story dealt with. Mm-hmm. Now let's have a look at what happened to Dan Davies. Okay, because I've got to say, the thought of the New South Wales Rugby League banning a player for life when rugby league players had been banned for life for playing rugby league and becoming professionals. Uh, and yeah, rugby yeah union league. players, yeah. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable that they would take that sort of stance on any play because it, it kind of goes against what rugby league was all about. Exactly right. And this iron fist attitude was also a bit... Um, a bit new, I guess, for the game too, to be behaving like this at a time when playing numbers were pretty low. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be doing this seemed a bit a bit mad. Yeah. <clears throat> so after re- receiving his punishment, Dean Davies quietly and promptly returned back to Lambton to go back to work in the coal mines. Upon arriving back home, weeks after his sentence was handed down, his former club Newcastle West tried to have the penalty overturned so that he could play exclusively in Newcastle. However, the New South Wales Rugby League would not shift their stance. Uh, soon after the appeal was rejected, Newcastle West threatened to boycott their match at Wickham Oval against Newcastle Norse, unless Norse allowed Davies to play for West. Norse said, yeah, fine, no worries, and the match went ahead. The league, though, soon learnt of Davies' appearance in this game, and their action was, let's call it, a little over the top. Little Considering... Heavy-handed. Considering what they've done already. Yeah. I mean, they've been this guy for life. They were going to ban all of the Glebe team for a year, a bit over a year and a bit. Mm-hmm. They've already moved a game around to, to punish Glebe some more as well. They're throwing that ban hammer around like league freak in the Pommy Rugby League forums about 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, to think that now they're going to go over the top. Right. So what they did is they decided that every player and administrator for the Newcastle competition, except for the Newcastle East side, were to be banned for life. <laughs> what? So they banned they banned everyone except for one club in the one Newcastle club. comp. Because they were not agreeable to this decision. Wow. So there were some players if they if they chose to be what we called, or what they called loyalists to the New South Wales Rugby League, they could choose to leave their clubs who had just been banned for life and join Newcastle East and the Newcastle competition, which was still running. However, <clears throat> the majority of the suspended players and officials decided, you know, essentially, stuff this, we'll start our own rebel competition. One, that the New South Wales Rugby League can't control because they've banned us all. So we're doing this on our own. Now, it's interesting because you said a word there, loyalists, and straight away I started having Super League War name yep. flashbacks. <laughs> That's right. It's it's a little case of history repeating the old Super League War. Yeah, yeah. It's um, also interesting that, like, this is 19... 
seven, uh, this nineteen eighteen now, and we're we're getting to the point where, like, because Newcastle used to be part of the the Sydney competition, and they said they basically said, "Look, go back to Newcastle and start a Newcastle comp," and it's not too far after that that this is all happening. Yeah, I mean, this is within ten years of that happening. Well, yeah, yeah, seven or eight years. Um. So the, the rebel competition became known as the Bolsheviks. And that name comes from the Socialist Revolutionary Faction in Russia that was formed by Vladimir Lenin. Mm-hmm. Um, they eventually took control of the power uh, power of the country of Russia. Interestingly enough, in the year 1917. How's that for a bit of symmetry? Yeah, that, that works out pretty well, hey? Yeah, and you learn a little bit about Russia there as well. You didn't think you'd get that in a rugby league podcast. Exactly. <laughs> um, upon hearing the news of the Rebel Code, the league again imposed life bans on everyone associated with the Rebel competition. So those people now had two life bans on them. <laughs> That's hilarious. So if you die and come back to life, you're still banned. Yeah. Can't get around it with reincarnation. <laughs> no. Unless you do it twice. Yeah. <laughs> Then you're um, However, as the as that rebel competition was administered, administered by the New South Wales Rugby League, the bans were just ignored, and the rebel competition continued on. I kind of love that. I love that <laughs> the, there are a bunch of dudes in Newcastle that were like, "Get stuffed! Yeah. You have nothing over us. You don't control us. We're going to play anyway. What are you going to do about it?" Essentially, it's the it's the kitty tantrum of you're not the boss of me. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> But it's a whole bunch of people in Newcastle, a whole bunch of dudes. Yeah. I love it. Um, so Newcastle East remained loyal and were left with the task of helping recreate a new comp which contained, as I said, all of the, the loyal players. And these players were known as Lily Whites. Oh, wow. Which is pretty harsh talk. I mean, it's it's comes back to that white feather sort of caper that went on in World War One and cowards and stuff like that, you know. Come with us and be with us, Rebel Lot. Don't be over there, you know, with that mob who gave us all bands. Yeah, and I, I guess Newcastle, I mean, it's pretty parochial now. Um, and we saw that even during the Super League War where they had the Knights and you had the Hunter Mariners that were started up by Super League and mm-hmm. in a Newcastle Mad... Uh, in rugby league mad Newcastle, the Mariners were absolute outcasts, and you were either you're either with Newcastle or you're against them. Yeah, and I mean as we're seeing here, that attitude's been around for a long time. Mm. Um, so because because pretty much most of the top players in the Newcastle region were playing in the Rebel competition, it meant that the official loyal competition in New South Wales Rugby League was the weaker of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, it con- consisted of mostly second-string sides, um, and because of that, they struggled to get crowds. For the 1918 and 1919 seasons, Newcastle had these two competitions running simultaneously, but as the Rebel competition was the more successful, and as time moved on, the league eventually lifted all of its life bans imposed on the players and officials in the Newcastle competition, and sanity was restored, allowing the competition to be reunified again for the 1920 season. 
Well, yeah, so it went on for a little while too. Like it wasn't like they just had one season like that. No, that's right. It was yeah, two two full seasons, and they they refused to budge. So essentially, the the Lily White's comp got merged into the Rebels one. Far out. And so, can I ask a question with the Lily White's competition? Did they basically just make replica clubs up that they used to have that they lost, but they yeah. were second string ones? Okay. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Um. So, Annandale, we've got a bit of a uh, post story stuff here now. So, Annandale actually uh, left the competition at the end of the nineteen twenty season. Mm-hmm. Gleep followed suit in nineteen twenty nine, despite despite being one of the consistently best-performing sides since the game's inception in 1908. Um, Glebe, despite being probably... Despite probably having one of the best win percentages in the history of the game, let alone just at that time, never won a premiership. They they finished second a ton of times. They won a City Cup, I think, in 1911 or 1912, which was... At the time, it was kind of like what the Challenge Cup is in England to their to their competition. It was seen as almost an equal competition to the main Premiership. Mm-hmm. So they, that was their only their only title though in that period. Um, it was believed that when the board had to decide on Glebe's existence, some of the past indiscretions by the club factored heavily in the league's decision to axe them. Oh wow. They held on to that grudge for another 13 years after this. That sounds very rugby league. Yeah, very rugby league. <laughs> um, as we discussed in a very early episode, the residential rule was eventually scrapped in 1959 when the game was going through several changes um, where a lot of money was coming in. Um, and as for Dan Davies, he played for Newcastle West in the Bolshevik competition and was selected to represent Newcastle against a touring British side in 1920 after the game had reunified. Mm-hmm. He eventually retired in 1923, and he lived the rest of his life in Newcastle up until his death in 1967. So he actually outlived Glebe, Annandale, um, <laughs> probably the administrators who gave him a life ban as well. Yeah. <laughs> but he got wow. the last laugh in the end. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very interesting that he out. Outlived the clubs. <laughs> and all of that happened from one lie about where he lived in Sydney. One little lie. And man, Annandale is not very far from Glebe. <laughs> no, that's, that's the thing too, is that um, you also had Balmain and Newtown there as well. Shows you how how condensed the rugby league community was then. Yeah, so, and uh, it's interesting because like, when you hear stories like this, part of you thinks, man, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a club like Glee back and almost right or wrong in a certain way? But when you look at the map, it's imp- absolutely impossible. There's no way that you could have, a, a say, an NRL team that was Glebe. No, that's right. And it's disappointing because, um, and this will upset a lot of Newtown fans, um, Glebe are the first team to officially join uh, rugby league when it first cha- you know first started in 1908 mm-hmm. there are there is a section of Newtown fans um, who believe that their club had a meeting to form a club the day before Glebe had theirs 
And I'm not going to say whether that's true or not. That's based on a minutes book that I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only go on what's reported in the newspapers. And the Newtown Club had, the, according to the newspapers, they had their annual general meeting a day or two after Glebe had theirs. Glebe was the first one. Um, and without going on too much about the Glebe Club, the the animosity that they've got with the league seems really odd when you consider how much Glebe did for the game when they when they changed codes. Because when they were playing rugby union with the uh, MRU, as it was then, the Metropolitan Rugby Union, Glebe were the glamour club and they were premiers. Mm-hmm. And when they switched codes, they brought with them Wentworth Park. So rugby league already had a marquee venue to play games at. Yeah, and they, like, weren't they also the only club where everything came across? Like, it wasn't just players, it, it was the whole lot. They brought oh, that the was, whole... That, that was neighbouring Balmain. Glebe brought across nearly everything, though. Okay, okay. They were very close to doing the same thing. Okay. Um, had some very powerful officials come across with them as well. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they those two clubs, Glebe and Balmain, were very loyal to the league movement from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that in the 10 years after league started, both those two clubs had huge arguments with the league. And we've discussed both of them now in the last two history episodes. Balmain with the 1909 final, mm-hmm. Glebe with 1917 and what went on with one player there. And you look at them, and while Glebe did lie about Dan Davies, Mm-hmm. Some of the actions that happened to them after that, you can side with the club. Definitely. And there's a similar sort of story with Balmain mm-hmm. with, in 1909. You can see where they're coming from and you can kind of side with them. But, you know, at the same time, you can also see where they've done something wrong. It's yeah. an interesting sort of dynamic. And in the end, the league just sort of keeps going, you know what? We will get tougher and tougher until we get our point across. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's and what I they al- did. I also guess, too, like, when you start a competition that is based on a rebellion, you're naturally <laughs> going to get people that want to rebel against the administration. That's what they're there for. And I guess once you're getting into 1917, a lot of administrators and coaches and things like that, they've moved on to being the people running the clubs and and. You know, now they're from being the players that maybe started rugby league up in Australia. Now the coaches and administrators, and they're pig-headed. They know what they want, and they're not gonna they're not gonna settle for some administrator. That's you know? exactly right. Which which makes it interesting that they were so the the New South Wales Rugby League was so quick to come down on a rebel Newcastle Rugby League comp. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting, and as I said, it goes against everything that rugby league kind of stood for in a way. And it failed because rugby league people are pig-headed. You know, they're like, what, you're going to ban the game? We'll just we'll play anyway. Yeah. What are you going to do? Exactly. I love this it. Is, this is at a time, too, when you had to go by horse and carriage and whatnot to go and see these, and you had to rely on telegrams and whatnot. Mm. So I'd like to know how the league found out that Davis had returned to playing. Like yeah, there's, it a, be, there's a snitch up there somewhere. Yeah, or or somebody had because back then it would have been a decent travel to go up to Newcastle from Sydney. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to know how they found out. I mean, just get message back to him. 
that had been banned for life. That would have taken a little bit. It would have taken a while, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, it's just a fascinating story for me with with all of the dramas going on with the war, um, trying to recruit players, and then you know the league's trying to stay solvent and you know competitive and everything like that, and yet they took absolutely no no time whatsoever to consider whether or not banning players for life was a good idea or not. They just went, nope, we're doing it. Bang, down with a hammer, you're all banned. Mm. And they didn't care who. I mean, Frank Burge and you know, Glee had a, a ton of great players in that 1917 side, and they just went, no, nope, we don't care. He had a time where they couldn't really afford to lose players. Yeah. Um. But I suppose they were lucky too because there was no rival foot rugby code to go to because rugby union was, well, I, I I feel I should address another myth here, and that was rugby union did play games during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, their comp their official MRU competition sides did play games during the war. They were declared as friendlies initially, mm-hmm. but they were still played. So. Mm-hmm. For them to come out and say that they stopped all competition and they stopped all games, they they didn't. It's just they another lie. Games. And because they because they didn't pay their players officially, wink wink, um, it, it meant that pretty much nearly all of the gate takings that they got went into rugby union coffers. And obviously, they too donated funds to the war effort. Every sporting agency did, but. Um, they didn't donate all monies to to the to the war effort because no no sport did. It was like sixty or sixty percent or something like that. That's all right. Sixty percent of our gate takers will go to the war effort, and we'll keep the other forty percent. You know, administration costs, <laughs> that yeah. sort of thing. So, yeah, they played games during the war. Don't believe the myth that they were the on this moral high ground where. They seized everything. They stopped everything, and all all of their players went to war because that didn't happen. And... I think uh, the other thing is too, like at at this time in history, they used it as a weapon against rugby league. It's funny they don't talk about cozying up with the Nazis in France, well, yes. and uh, just taking all of rugby league's assets down to jerseys and footballs and stuff. And they just, you know, they took it. They didn't care. It's... Took the name. Refused to allow them to use the word rugby. Still to this day, it's one of those yeah. things though in in like this nineteen this World War One period, where when you look in a lot of the newspapers at the time, rugby union is almost gloating about the number of players they've got serving in war. Mm-hmm. No other sports doing it. They're not even they're not even talking about the war, other than saying we've raised this much money for the war effort. Yeah, and rugby unions out there going, mm. you know, here's a list of all of our all of our players and which clubs, and you know, they're all serving in war, and then they've got this another another article saying, you know, all of these people died at war, all these rugby union players died at war. Yeah, like, do you, what do you reckon? Weird celebratory PR. I don't know what the hell it was. It was almost like yeah. they're trying to get some moral high ground over other sports. That's what I was going to say. It, I feel as because we still see it today, brought up right. And I feel like it is just uh, trying to get a moral high ground. That That's pretty much what it was. Mm. And, I mean, look at the game now and you'll say, did it work? 
No. People kind of saw through it. Um, yeah, they were pretty pretty much just preaching to the converted at that stage. All the rugby union fans used it as fuel to justify their arguments and the myth against the other sports, including league. But other than that, most people saw through it pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the uh, the story of 1917 and, and the one little lie about Dan Davies. Yeah, that's an interesting one, and it, it weaves in with uh, World War One, which I absolutely love. Uh, well, I love reading the history about World War One. It's a very, very interesting war. And uh, the impact that it had on rugby league and, you know, the impact that administrators and some very stern rules and had on, on the game overall, especially up in Newcastle. Absolutely. Um, and I just have one recommendation I'd like to throw in there. Um, if anyone wants to learn more about some of the the players who served in World War One, there was a great documentary which goes for about 45 minutes to an hour, I think, on the NRL website. Um, I don't know if you find it there, but if you do a Google search, Google search for Headgear to Helmets, um, it's on the NRL website. It's done by a good mate of mine and magnificent historian Terry Williams. Um, check it out. It's phenomenal. He goes through and talks about you know, the background of, you know, a, a huge number of, not all of them, a huge number of prominent Sydney footballers. There's also a number of Queensland footballers um, and a few who didn't even make it to the big time but were rugby league players who had distinguished careers in on the uh, on the war front. And Terry's also got a book coming out um, sometime soon which goes into more detail about a lot more other rugby league um servicemen as well from World War One, So check those out. They're phenomenal. Yeah, we'll put the uh, link in the description for this podcast. So um, check that out through the link so that that'll be easily available. Yeah. Um, I guess that pretty much wraps this one up then. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I've you've taught me a hell of a lot about the 1917 season. Um I love the storylines in rugby league. Hey, there's always a great story in rugby league. It feels like, yeah, it's 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 funny. I, I every time I hear about people talking about you know tumultuous off seasons, yeah, <laughs> I always look at them and go, "Have we all forgotten 1917?" And go, "Yeah, they all have," because that's yeah. probably the most tumultuous one we've ever had. An entire competition banned for life. A a bunch of players from one entire club banned for an entire year. Just, we've not had anything like that since. The only thing that comes close to that is the Super League War. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really, that's it, yeah. Um, I guess after that, the only thing that comes close is when the Cronulla Sharks players had, um, they had a ban put on them, and it was, they were kind of banned over the off-season conveniently um, during the Asada Asada case. That's about yeah. the only other time I can think of where a club had ma- a mass sort of ban like that. That's pretty much it. Mm. Um, yeah, it sort of pales in comparison to the other ones. Oh, yeah. Not even close to it. And it's largely, it pales in comparison purely because the the ones that happened in 1917 were, you know, they weren't really justified, really, the mm. over-the-top bannings. And I think that's the problem yeah. with the, that I find with them and, and why I find this story so fascinating. 
Okay, here's a question for you. If you are the New South Wales Rugby League at the time, mm. and you know that Glebe has knowingly had a player play for them that should not have played, I understand them losing the the points for that game. Mm-hmm. But what greater penalty do you think would have been all right to impose on the club rather than banning all their players like they did, which is just ridiculous? What penalty do you think they should have received? Um, I don't know that they should have received a penalty at all. Um, okay. Maybe, yeah, maybe a week because there was only one game left in the season after that. And they wanted to make it sound as though they were being really strong mm-hmm. by banning everyone until March 1919. Mm. That sounds pretty pretty massive. Yeah. But it's actually 15 games of football, which doesn't sound yeah. as severe. I mean, it's still a lot of games, obviously. But you're, you're banning them for 15, 15 games for essentially rugby league's version of treason. Yeah. And, and the, I guess the other thing to keep in mind too is like we look at it, like we look back at the residency rule and it's a little bit silly to us considering yeah. what we see in modern day sport. But to them, I mean, this is a rule that was in place for decades after this. And I know that it got a little bit relaxed at times and that was played around with a little bit from time to time, but it was still a rule in the game right up until uh, Dennis Tardy. And he had to go to court to break it down. That's right. Um, so it, it was an important rule to them. I, I and, still think it was over the top what they did, but I'm I'm kind of surprised that they didn't impose a points penalty to start the season. I mean, maybe that was just something that, like, um, we've seen that in the NRL from time to time, where you start a season for salary cap breaches on minus points. I wonder if back then that just seemed ridiculous to them. This is the thing, and I don't know why. It's just another thing that seems weird. Glebe were a big drawing team because they were successful. Mm. They got good crowds for a lot of their games, and they played at Wentworth Park, a, you know, one of the marquee venues at the time. Stripping them of all their star players just meant so much money and so much interest went out of the game of rugby league, which yeah, is probably the nice. reason why they decided to turn their back on the on the on the big bands and just reduce it to round one. You know, everyone's able to play as of round one. Mm-hmm. Um. I guess this, you know what this is? This must be the first, we have a salary cap now. This is like breaching the salary cap to them. Pretty much, yeah. That's that's a good way of looking at it. I hadn't yeah. thought of it like that before. Like when you look at it like that, you can see where the administrators were just absolutely furious at what was going on. Yeah, I mean, they were genuinely incensed. Mm-hmm. Um, how dare you defy us and our rules, that sort of thing. Mm. So the it's worth pointing out, Glebe finished in sixth sixth place. Oh, sorry, a fifth place on the ladder in nineteen seventeen. If they hadn't have been docked those two competition points, they would have finished third. Yeah, their four and against was pretty damn good. It was the third best four and against in the league. Um so it was a fair penalty. It was a, a fair penalty in terms of where they finished the season. 
Um, one of the interesting things here that I'm having to look at, the captain was Frank Burge, Chris McKivitt and uh, Alex Burden were the coaches. Chris McKivitt, a very, very, very big um, personality in the game early on. Uh, one of the game's early superstars and yes. a, uh, a former Wallaby come across and yes, that caused he, a lot of problems when he come across too with right. all his he mates. Was, he was the the ringleader of the Wallabies team in 1909 who, instead of accepting the small, mediocre amount of money that they were, that was put to them to switch codes, he demanded the immense volume more and got it. So he's kind of been, I dare say, in the league's views, he's probably been antagonist to them the whole time as well because of what he did in 1909. Yeah, and like whenever I've, I've read about him in the past, he's one of these guys that all, it, it seems as though he would he could sit down and negotiate with people that were administrators and stuff and leave the room with the best deal. And and was yeah. almost the smartest guy in the room wherever he was. Like he was just one of those people and it had a real good football brain too, from what I've read. Um really, really important person in the early early years of rugby league. Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean and an absolute game changer mm. in the forwards. I mean, up until that period, the game was full of exciting backs. Mm-hmm. Mostly centers. Um, and the occasional fullback, but mostly centres. And then Frank Birch came along, and all of a sudden, prominent forwards became the thing. After him, you had George Drewick. Um I suppose you could put Jimmy Craig in there, given he was possibly, you know, he's regarded as the most versatile player ever. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. have to do an episode on him one day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's... Uh, just sort of the focus on the game went from being on the backs to being the forwards, and a lot of great forwards came through off the back of what Frank Burge had sort of done. Um, so, yeah, definite game changer and definitely deserving of the immortal status that he got last year as well too. Oh, 100%. And to be honest, probably overdue. I mean, it, there was yeah. definitely part of that was the fact that the first round of Immortals, it was post-war Immortals, uh, post-World War II Immortals. Um, and, and so that excluded him, but yeah, fantastic player. And as I said, his record, it's, it, it, when you see it, it's almost stands out as some sort of anomaly. Um, and I always think players like that, they're, I mean, they're markers in history for the game. Yeah. Um, have a quick look at his profile. He just, his stats, he played from 1911 till 1926 with Glebe. And then he played the 1927 season with St. George. Um, 153 first grade games, 148 tries. That's that's absolutely insane. <laughs> um, As a forward. Yeah, and then he played 36 rep games. And that's with um, Metropolis, which is like a Sydney team. Mm-hmm. Um, the New South Wales state side, that's not just against Queensland, but against everyone they played against, like touring nations and stuff like that. Um, the New South Wales reserve sort of team, so called seconds, and a Kangaroos side, which wasn't the Australian team. And out of that, he played 36 games for all of those and scored 53 tries. Whoa. Um, and 13 tests for Australia, scoring seven tries. Incredible player. And then went on to become a coach. 
coached, yeah. coached over the course of uh, 20 years. He did. Uh, just phenomenal athlete. So that's uh, that's pretty much everything there. Yeah, he's uh, and Frank Burge also. He he died in 1958 at the age of 64. Yeah, very young, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so that's that's someone else who uh, Dan Davies outlived as well by three years. <laughs> Dan Davies, tell you what, they're lucky they gave him a life being a. He lived for long enough. Yeah, he <laughs> probably would have been starting looking at that second one. Yeah, he's, look, he's probably alive in some capacity today. No, oh, he's still around. They should, <laughs> I was thinking they they should name the uh, the Newcastle competition. They should name their their big trophy the the, the Dan Davies Trophy or something like that, the Dan Davies oh, Cup. That would be amazing. Or, I mean, I guess the NRL could name it. Like what? It, what would be one that you could give in the NRL for him? Like if you play, say, three hundred games for one club, even though he didn't play that many games for, you know, in the New South Wales Rugby League. How about how about the the best foreigner? The best foreigner goes to Dan Davies. It gives, gives the gives the Dan Davies award because he came from somewhere else other than Sydney at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that Newcastle, like, in, for a long, long time, Newcastle was like this other thing. Like, it was, it was like an import coming down. Like, even Clive Churchill, you know, he was a Newcastle player. It wasn't seen as, it was seen as something different, a play from Newcastle, for a very long time. And now we take for granted that you can, you're a Newcastle player, but you're, you're part of the main comp. Exactly. Yeah, Newcastle had always been uh, a massive nursery for rugby league talent. Um, so yeah, it's it's just fascinating that the, the one talent that they did get there who caused so much drama was was the one bloke who barely played any rep footy whatsoever. Yeah, I wonder what he was <laughs> like as a dude. Like, I feel like I kind of hope that I've read he was about super him, casual. Yeah, everything I've read about him has pointed out that he's he's fairly casual, and laid back about it. Like mm. he he didn't he didn't make the request to Newcastle West to go back to playing footy. They went and asked him. Yeah, he was like, oh, you know, I've got this band, you know, and they went, oh, don't worry about that. We'll we'll fight that for you. He's like, yeah, right, whatever. And they get back to him, oh mate, we well, didn't get the band. If he's like, oh well, don't worry about it. She's all right. Like, we'll, we'll get you to play. Like, yeah, all right, whatever. <laughs> I feel like there needs to be a trophy for him, right? And it needs to be him standing there and just like waving his hand away at someone like, just shut up. You yeah, know? whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Maybe it's not the golden boot should be these days. Oh, it'd be better to have a, a, you know, a trophy with him on it, Dan Davies. That'd be fantastic. Be made of coal. Yeah, just pure coal. Because he was a coal miner. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, that wraps up a good episode. Yeah, thank you for, for that one, Andrew. That was a good one. It was. All history ones are good episodes. Mm, they are. They are. People love them, so we're going to keep doing them. Yeah, we'll find find the next topic soon and punch another one out. Mm. Um, so until then, we'll catch you next time. <laughs>